You are tuned to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. We are two weeks into October, and what a month it has been as tensions between China and Taiwan take to the skies. And, you know, allies of Taiwan, including the U.S., are watching the developments closely. Over the weekend, China marked the anniversary of its Communist Party with tough talk threatening Taiwan. What to make of the posturing? Is China really preparing to attack Taiwan? East-West Center Senior Fellow Denny Roy focuses on Asia-Pacific security issues and thinks not. We talked with him yesterday about what could be behind the recent events as well as what's ahead in upcoming talks between the U.S. and China later this month. As people have seen over the last couple of years, U.S.-China relations really deteriorated noticeably because of the pandemic. So that's the proximate cause. But there are a couple of deeper things happening. The first is that the power gap between the United States and China is closing. So, for example, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the United States might have thought uh, China isn't doing it every, everything we want them to do. But we're so much more powerful than China is that China is not terribly threatening to us. So there's time that we might be able to socialize China so that by the time it becomes a great power, it'll be a friendly great power. But that time is, has now slipped away. China is quite powerful now and consequently is able to do a lot of harm to the United States and American allies if it wanted to. The second thing that's happening is Xi Jinping. He is the embodiment of what the United States hoped would not happen as China got richer and more powerful. Americans hoped that China would get increasingly liberal. But instead, as China has gotten richer under Xi Jinping, it's gotten more, from the American point of view, aggressive and less supportive of the rules of the international system. On the U.S. side, we have disappointment that China has not become a friendly great power. And consequently, American policy is oriented around treating China more like an adversary. Not that there's no cooperation, but, but there's more suspicion than previously, and our policies reflect that. So we see economic decoupling in some important sectors, and we see more U.S. and other countries engaging in security cooperation that, that is aimed at China, even if we don't say so. From the Chinese point of view, the Chinese see that China has been trying to catch up and become a great power for many decades, but now has arrived. So instead of waiting and managing these many disputes that China would like to see resolved on Chinese terms, the Chinese people demand wins now. They, they, they want these things resolved in China's favor. So this was reflected in a meeting in Alaska, people might, might remember, a few months ago between U.S. and Chinese officials where the Chinese side said, among other things, we are now in a position of strength. You can no longer talk down to us. You need to accommodate us. What can you say about the trade imbalance? It continues to be a problem from the U.S. point of view. And because we have a trade imbalance combined now with the, the sense that China is, is really now a sharper competitor, even a potential adversary. That trade imbalance is less tolerable from the U.S. point of view than it might have been 10, 20, 15 years ago. On the other hand, the Chinese are pushing for returning to the good old days of a couple of years ago when the United States didn't worry so much about the trade imbalance. The Chinese, of course, see the American pressure over the trade imbalance as, as having some kind of a nefarious hidden agenda of wanting to, to suppress or contain China. So this is one of the major points of tension in the relationship now. You mentioned the recent talks. There are additional climate change meetings, I think, that are scheduled for later this month. Um, how do you see those strained relations playing out? There are a couple of problems with U.S. and China cooperation on climate change. The first thing is China tends to link all issues to politics, whereas the, the Americans tend to approach something like climate change or a health issue with the view that it should be taken on its own merit. Even if we have a poor political relationship, we should have no barriers to cooperating on an issue that transcends politics. The, the Chinese have already signaled that they're going to hold cooperation on climate change with the Americans subject to an, an improvement in the political aspects of the U.S.-China relationship. So China is, as usual, seeing that when the Americans are interested in something, it's an opportunity for China to exploit that interest. The second problem here is that China is now the biggest greenhouse gas uh, emitter in the world by a large margin. So on the one hand, this is going to create a, an expectation on the side of the United States that China should do more, maybe more than the United States has farther to go uh, to address this problem. 
And that will be a difficult sell on the Chinese side. If there's any hint of an inequality in the demand, the Chinese are going to interpret this as, again, the Americans trying to take advantage of an opportunity to slow down Chinese growth. I also worry that, that uh, for our domestic politics, Americans are going to perceive that China being a larger emitter is not doing a lot more than other countries. China is free riding. That will make it more difficult for the United States and other countries to, to do more combat climate change, because the argument will be, uh, no matter what we do, if the Chinese aren't, aren't doing anything, then, then the Chinese will continue to pollute the planet and outstrip whatever efforts we make. So why are we making sacrifices that will have no consequence? I do remember my first time going to Beijing, and the pollution was so bad, I just felt so sad for the whole world. Yeah, especially for them. So well, should we not be so optimistic that there's going to be much headway at these upcoming talks? I would have low expectations. What about the relationship between China and Taiwan? Because we've seen, you know, lots of headlines, you know, particularly this weekend with the anniversaries. What's happening there? There's a lot of hysteria about the, the fear that China is about to ta- attack Taiwan, that, a, that an invasion is imminent. And this is based, I think, on three things. The first is the Chinese have been flying a lot of aircraft near Taiwan over a year. The second thing is the Chinese military is strong enough now that conceivable that the Chinese could begin to think about possibly launching an attack, maybe even an invasion, with an expectation of success, whereas that wasn't necessarily true, say, 20 years ago. And the, the, the third element is a lot of folks are connecting Hong Kong with Taiwan. They're saying China is on a, a sort of an aggressive binge. You saw what they did to Hong Kong, and, and now in the Chinese mind, Taiwan is next. If China is, as some people put it, is moving on Hong Kong, then that makes it more likely we should have greater expectation it's going to move on Taiwan. I think uh, all three of these reasons, questionable, uh, that lead into the expectation that an attack, an attack is imminent. I think a Chinese attack on Taiwan is not imminent. First of all, the Chinese aircraft incursions near Taiwan have purposes other than being a precursor to a Chinese invasion. The Chinese would say they're doing this in reaction to U.S. moves in the last couple of years to draw the United States closer to the government in Taipei, which is a red line to some degree for China. Secondly, these aircraft flights create psychological pressure on Taiwan. It's a warning to Taiwan, and and the, the Chinese hope that this will weigh into Taiwan's domestic politics that uh, Taiwan people ought not to support politicians who are advocating that Taiwan more and more distance itself from China. And thirdly, there's a military purpose. That is, the Chinese Air Force sorties flying near Taiwan force the Taiwan Air Force to respond. When, when Chinese aircraft approach, Taiwan has, has to launch aircraft in response to monitor them, to escort them out of uh, Taiwan's uh, air defense airspace if necessary. Because the Chinese Air Force is a lot larger than the Taiwan Air Force, this has the effect of, of creating a lot of maintenance problems for the Taiwan Air Force for, for wearing them out. And the Chinese hope that this will increase the psychological idea that Taiwan cannot keep up with China militarily. China is more bigger, bigger and has more military resources. And it's reminding Taiwan that, that if it ever came to a military conflict, that that Taiwan would be outgunned you know, by sheer numbers. China is stronger militarily, but there would still be huge dangers and risks in undertaking any kind of a serious military attack on Taiwan, especially an invasion. It would be an extraordinarily difficult operation to pull off. Japan has recently signaled that it would probably be involved, get involved, if China was to attack Taiwan. That complicates things for China. The United States is still not saying that it, it wouldn't intervene. And finally, the idea that uh, Hong Kong has any bearing on what happens with uh, PRC policy toward Taiwan, I think, is also an invalid argument. What Beijing is doing in Taiwan has its own completely separate logic from Beijing's relationship to Taiwan. And finally, most importantly, the 20th Party Congress for the Chinese Communist Party is coming up about a year from now. This is a time when Xi Jinping will get confirmed, he he hopes, uh, to another term. So he's now in sort of the final campaign year before that happens. And he needs to present himself as a leader who can manage the Taiwan relationship, manage the relationship with the United States, 
he does not need to conquer Taiwan before the 20th Party Congress to get what he wants. On the other hand, launching an attack against Taiwan would create tremendous risk, and including the risk of torpedoing any chance he has of getting reappointed as China's leader for another term. Uh, so his best play is to keep things calm between now and then, while continuing to maintain simmering pressure on Taiwan to show that he's still serious about solving the Taiwan problem. There's just the surface activity that's happening, but there's kind of a, a deeper strategy at well, play. China is, China is the master, maybe even the inventor of military stratagems. And as Sunza would say, you want to create the impression that you might attack and benefit from the psychological movement you might get on the other side, even if you have no intention to attack. So creating an atmosphere of danger in, in hopes of getting some political gains out of it when, when in fact, there's no actual intent to attack would be completely in line with traditional Chinese military thinking. That was East West Center Asia Pacific security expert Danny Roy helping us to understand what's behind the headlines of growing tension between the U.S. and China and China and Taiwan. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Dietrich Insurance, working with Hawaii clients to help protect what is important to them now and in the future. More about auto, home, and business insurance at Dietrich, DTRIC.com. School boards are a new nexus of America's culture wars. We said, you know, everybody in our schools had to wear a mask. And they stood up, they yelled, lies, lies, and they tried to drown it out. The targeting of school boards is a political tactic that is being used by organizations all across the right-wing political movement. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We'll hear that deeper story on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from Locations, providing guidance for new home buyers with virtual first-time home buyer seminars. More about the October 19th seminar at locationshawaii.com/seminar. Hawaii Pacific University's Oceanic Institute announced it's been awarded a five-year federal grant of more than a half a million dollars to increase Native Hawaiian participation in STEM fields. We talked to Sean Moss, executive director of the Oceanic Institute, about what this means. We recognize that the Native Hawaiian students enrolled at HP were not well represented in the STEM majors. STEM, of course, stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. We decided that aquaculture, which is what we do here at Oceanic Institute, really represents a unique transdisciplinary platform for STEM education because it integrates biology and chemistry and engineering and even business in a very holistic manner. So we thought that leveraging HPU's content expertise in aquaculture at OI and integrating that with the academic part of the university that we could attract more Native Hawaiian students into STEM and then hopefully graduate more Native Hawaiian students in STEM disciplines. And we believe this is important because we want to graduate Native Hawaiian students who play kind of an increasingly important leadership role in helping these very complex and transdisciplinary challenges that are facing Hawaii and not just Hawaii, other island communities in the context of topics like food insecurity, global climate change, and job diversification. So we thought this was a really powerful platform to get Native Hawaiian students interested in STEM disciplines, graduating with STEM degrees, and then participating in this very important conversation about these very, very critical issues that are going to get only increasingly more important over time. It is important, you know, to put a special emphasis, I think, on Native Hawaiians just because they're the host culture, right? Right, absolutely. And I know, you know, the good work at the University of Hawaii that they've managed to to create leaders out there, you know, over at Papahanao, Makuakea, who right. are now in positions of power, and they can integrate the cultural aspect and the approach to aquaculture and just marine science in general. Right. No, I agree. I think communities who are most invested 
in a resource that's in the public domain are the ones who live there. And so we need more representation among the Native Hawaiian communities here to have a voice in the fate of these islands and the island resources. So how do you plan to use this grant? So the grant will have several parts, one of which is just an infrastructure improvement component. So we'll use a portion of the grant to upgrade facilities so that we can use our existing facilities as an effective platform to teach aquaculture. OI was built in the 60s and 70s, and um, parts of our facility haven't really received a lot of capital improvement over the years. So we're going to use some of the money just to upgrade some of our facilities to better handle the students in a more educational setting. And then a big chunk of the funding will also be used to develop programs to integrate into the academic part of the university. So we have planned to integrate into some of the courses at HPU, lessons about aquaculture and the importance of aquaculture in the cultural context that it has here in Hawaii. And that objective is really designed to stimulate freshmen and undeclared sophomores, stimulate them into thinking about a STEM major. And then as they start to go through their academic career, we're going to provide hands-on learning opportunities here at OI, side-by-side with scientists from Oceanic Institute to participate in funded projects that we have. And we usually have a number of ongoing projects funded by federal, state, and private funding sources. And so students will be provided opportunities through workshops, through capstone courses, through integration with classroom exercises to actually get hands-on experiential learning experiences here at OI as an HPU undergraduate. And for folks who aren't familiar with Oceanic Institute and the types of things that you're doing there, I mean, highlight some of the the achievements. So Oceanic Institute has been around 61 years. Uh, We've been around a long time. In 2014, we merged with Hawaii Pacific University. So we're a research and education component within the University of Ohana. We're really integrated well with the College of Natural and Computational Sciences. And essentially, our mission is to develop and transfer technologies to increase aquatic food production while promoting the sustainable use of ocean resources. And how that mission manifests currently, for example, is we are actively involved in the captive propagation of yellow tang, which is an important coral reef fish here in Hawaii. Not that long ago, up to 300,000 yellow tang were collected from the reefs off Kona, caught wild, and then introduced into the aquarium trade. Well, over about 15, 20 years of research, we figured out how to effectively aquaculture yellow tang, and we're now providing yellow tang into the aquarium trade industry with a private sector partner to help relieve pressure from the reefs. So we do aquaculture for conservation in the context of yellow tang aquaculture, and we also do aquaculture in the context of aquatic food production. Oceanic Institute was the first organization in the world to develop disease-free shrimp, and we were the first organization in the world to develop a selective breeding program for shrimp. So we took tools out of the toolbox from the chicken and pig and cattle farmers, and we applied them to shrimp, and we had incredible results. And now Hawaii is known worldwide for our our shrimp breeding and stimulating global shrimp aquaculture industry. You know, over the years, I've done stories on both those programs, and I know even to this day, I get excited when I see a yellow tang Uh, out on the reefs when I'm swimming, because I just know there used to be far more in abundance, even off Waikiki. And so when you see them starting to rebound, I get excited. Yeah, this was a huge achievement by Dr. Chad Callen and the FinFish Department here at Oceanic Institute. There were some serious technical obstacles that needed to be overcome, and that literally took almost two decades of research. But Chad and his team cracked that nut, and now we're working with a a company to produce yellow tang in significant numbers, we think, that will provide this captive alternative to wild-caught yellow tang. So we were very excited about that technology breakthrough, and now we feel we're having a, a material impact on the industry. And, you know, you talk about food security, and there have been, you know, conversations around the fish farms. Yes. The new technology that is underway. And then there's also the conversation around the traditional fish ponds 
and the types of things that we could be doing there just to help make ourselves more sustainable. The Hawaiian fish pond story is fascinating. I think about the time of Captain Cook's arrival, there were close to 400 fish ponds helping feed about a million native Hawaiians. And the native Hawaiians weren't importing any food, obviously, from the mainland or Asia. Fast forward about 250 years to today, and we import about 90% of the food, and there's only about 1.4 million people here. So a slight increase in the population, yet we're now 90% dependent on imported food. So the old, uh, the loko ia in the context of the ahupua'a system, there's lessons for us to learn from that particularly with regard to sustainability. And there has been a renaissance over the last few decades in revitalizing the Hawaiian fish ponds. My contention is that Hawaiian fish ponds can work simultaneously and in concert with some of the more advanced technologies. But what's clear and unequivocal is that we have to improve our food security situation in Hawaii. We all recognize, particularly in the aftermath or ongoing COVID, how vulnerable our food supply chains are. And we know if, if, for example, if there's a tsunami that knocks our port out and we can't get food here, we have about, I think, what I've heard is a 12-day food supply in inventory here. And, and things get We'll get a little crazy after that. So it it really is incumbent upon both the public and private sectors here in Hawaii to take a serious look at how we can become more food self-sufficient. And in my opinion, aquaculture can play a critical role in that. Well, I think there are some who feel that if there is a lot of you know funding and effort behind the fish farms, that that might take away from the funding and efforts behind bringing back are fish ponds, you know, but you're saying, you know, there's there's room for both, you think? Absolutely, there's room for growth. Certainly the operators of the Hawaiian fish ponds, the local yeah, the market would be local. The types of fish that would be produced in the traditional Hawaiian fish ponds the ama-ama, the striped mullet, and the ava, the milkfish, and, and several others, really would be targeted for local markets. Some of the fish farms, the offshore cage culture that exists and, and that are currently envisioned, I think include both food for local consumption as well as potential export products as a business. But I definitely think there's room for both kind of the traditional Hawaiian fish ponds, as well as some of the newer technologies and maybe even some onshore aquaculture production at Nelha, for example, in Kailua Kona. So I think there's there's room for a suite of technologies, and those that are most efficient and effective will be will be the ones that will succeed moving forward. But I think we really need to explore all options, because the real imperative here is is we've got to produce more food here locally for for our communities and not be so reliant on imported food. Okay, so growth for both. Yes. Well, you've certainly given us uh, something to think about going forward, and uh, we appreciate your time. And, and if you could just keep us posted on, you know, the progress of this grant and, and uh, you know, as you roll roll this out over the five years. I sure will, and I appreciate your interest in our work. That was Sean Moss of Hawaii Pacific University's Oceanic Institute talking about a federal grant totaling more than a half a million dollars. It has been awarded to boost more Native Hawaiians in STEM fields, including aquaculture. It's now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Education reporter Suvan Lee has new numbers on how many public school teachers left the profession over this pandemic. Good morning, Suvan. That's right. Good morning, Catherine. You know, it's really good to to be able to see hard data uh, because it's one thing to hear people, you know, say, "Oh, we, we're in a crisis. We're losing teachers," but when you actually have the facts, it it, it gives you a stronger picture. Right. Um, and now that we have um, the 2021 school year behind us now, we know exactly how many teachers either retired or resigned from their positions. And the data that um, was uh, provided by the DOE indicates that there were 25% more teachers who left 
their profession in the 2021 school year compared with the year before. So that does heavily suggest that pandemic, that pandemic has contributed to these withdrawals from the DOE because of the added stresses of teaching during this time. Right. I mean, the whole thing about distancing and masks and, you know, the vaccinations. I mean, yeah, I, you, you know, you could hear their fear about being in close contact with so many students. Sure. And that's just one component of the stress that teachers felt. The health and safety concerns, obviously, is one of them. Um, whether it's safe to be in the classroom around unvaccinated children, and that is certainly a concern this year with kids under 12 still not eligible, though it's nearing. But in the last school year, at least, it was just the increased workload especially having to simultaneously teach kids who were coming into the classroom and then catering to students online. So you had this sort of hybrid teaching that was um, just exacerbating their workload. In addition to the fact that many teachers, according to a survey that they completed in May, felt like they weren't getting enough planning time for lessons or enough time to collaborate with other teachers. So I think that they were just feeling a lot of um, stress and pressure to uh, catch kids up academically, when a lot of them also said that they needed more training to provide social and emotional education to their students, but they just didn't quite know how to do that. Yeah, and I was hearing a lot of anecdotal stories about folks saying, oh, it's just too much, and I'm just going to retire early. Right. And we hear those anecdotes a lot. And principals I've spoken to have told me, for instance, Derek Minakami over at Kaneohe Elementary said there were five teacher retirements last school year when he normally only has like one teacher leave. And so I asked why, and he said, well, they were feeling burnt out. I mean, some of them did leave due to the fact they had to hybrid teach or they were feeling Um, burnt out, but also they might have to take care of an elderly parent. But I think these are all factors that may not otherwise have been in play in previous years pre-pandemic. They're just as added um, increased um, things that teachers, responsibilities that teachers needed to take on. And so these numbers just gotten from the DOE do illustrate perhaps that anecdotal Um, the anecdotal stories that people were sharing with me and with you. Yeah, so so we've got the teachers that that retired, and you've got those numbers, and they're up, and then also just teachers who just decided to hang it up and maybe do something else. Absolutely, and I don't want to limit this to just teachers, although the story does focus on the teaching staff. I think there are a lot of principals who were also feeling burnt out and... um, are perhaps contemplating retiring early, and also at the superintendent level, Um, not just in Hawaii, but we see superintendents all over the country who are leaving their posts because this is a very difficult job to have, especially in the time of COVID. So all across the up and up and down the educational system, I think not just in Hawaii, but elsewhere in the country, um, the pandemic had really sort of accelerated retirements and resignations and that does lead to a very big question of how will that impact actual instruction and students in the classroom who depend on that consistent presence to succeed right so what do we do now but thanks so much Subhan absolutely thank you for having me on that was education reporter Subhan Lee with today's reality check to read the full story visit civilbeat.org Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com.
On the next Fresh Air, the massive trove of private financial records revealing how many heads of state, criminals, and wealthy people have shielded assets in secretive accounts, including in the U.S. Those accounts have held billions of dollars out of sight from tax authorities, creditors, and criminal investigators. We'll talk with The Washington Post's Greg Miller. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the museum's galleries and outdoor courtyards until 9 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Petty Welton had dreamed of a career in conservation since she was in high school, but she never expected that she would end up as a botanist for the Haleakala National Park on Maui. She just retired after 30 years with the park, and in that time, she watched both the environment and the conservation movement change. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Welton about where we need to take action to protect our ecosystem. I want to step back for a moment. You mentioned even before you set your sights on botany, you knew you were interested in conservation. Can you tell me what conservation meant in that time and how it differs from how we understand conservation now? Well, I grew up um, north of Los Angeles in a little town called Calabasas. Um, It's not so little anymore. Um, It's home to many of the rich and famous. And at the time, we had horses, and um, I would come home from school and throw a rope over a my horse and ride around in the oak woodlands and I fell in love with uh, the environment and then when I was in high school I had a friend who was a, a, a falconer and so we spent a lot of time in those woodlands and flying his his hawks and falcons and they were bulldozing my oak woodlands to build tennis courts and riding horses or, you know, rings for the people moving out of L.A. I think that's why I chose to study environmental biology. And then it led to a career in conservation. At what point in your work did climate change start to become a topic of discussion? Um, Well, I think it was probably in the late 90s. I had done a, uh, my junior year, I spent in um, Norway, and it was a foreign exchange program, and there was a lot of talk about acid rain then, um, not so much climate change. But I think climate change became more of an issue in the late 90s. It actually is very noticeable at the park, and um, I've seen a lot of changes in the the 30 so years that I've been there and it is a very real thing. <laughs> Can you describe some of those changes that you've seen in your time at Haleakala? Most notably it's just before I left um, the Pukiavi which is a very hardy bush that's mostly throughout the crater and the shrubland is beginning to have a dieback problem in 2011, we noticed it in the front country above the headquarters where the visitor center is, and uh, actually Lloyd Loop came up and was also very concerned about it, and it was um, more at the 8200 elevation, and it was on the northwest slope, which is a drier because the trade winds come in on the northeast slope. So we were noticing that the inversion layer was changing and this, this Pukiavi was being more susceptible in the afternoon, harsh sunlight, whereas before it was usually had a lot of the inversion moisture. And just before I retired from the park, I went through the crater and noticed um, this phenomenon happening again. It apparently happened on Mauna Kea in the 1990s, and a paper suggests that the Pukiavi didn't really recover all that well. And, and what I noticed from the 2011 event, um, the Pukiavi didn't really recover. So that, I think, is a, a very telling indicator 
that the climate is really changing because it's really up above the inversion layer, so it's getting a lot more of the solar radiation. The area where we first noticed it in 2011 had a lot of rejuvenation or recruitment from other shrublands uh, species, such as the Ali'i and the Mamani. So that was kind of exciting to see that there could be a native replacement of what was more or less the dominant shrub. But we never really had the opportunity at the time to set up any plots and, and monitor it to get any real indication whether that is going to be a succession. So there's really not a lot the park can do to manage it other than just basically documenting and watching what happens for the future. Hmm. That brings up an interesting question. What do you think the role of our national park system is in conservation in a more traditional understanding as well as facing new challenges of, for instance, climate change? Well, I can't really speak for the whole national park system. I know they do have climate change biologists now that were trying to have some planning meetings before I retired, and I kind of regret that I didn't get an opportunity to participate in them. The Park Service at um, Haleakala is um, very concerned about climate change. It's mostly, at this point, focusing on the forest birds, which is also a very important part of the ecosystem. I think, regretfully, maybe that some of the lower elevation plants are not being put into the priority ranking as much as they could be. But they intend to try to manage and set priorities in the changing climate. We have a new chief of resources at Haleakala, and he is intending to bring in these climate change biologists and review priorities and try to figure out. I don't think there's any footprint or, or plan at this point about what is going to be a priority yet. But they are very aware. I think the, the time of denying it is, is over. <laughs> I mean, right now, we're in a drought where we live in Kula, and it, we, we went down to the beach yesterday, and it was sort of raining at Baldwin, but it wasn't coming up as far as we are. So we've been at this house for 20 years, and I think this is probably the driest that I've seen it. What is your primary concern, then, both about the challenges that we face in Hawaii in preserving our ecosystems, as well as where our current conservation movement might fall short in meeting those challenges? There are a lot of interested people. My initial interview at UH back in 1988 with Smith, he's the one who said there were no jobs in botany. That has really changed over the years. So, and there's a lot of more partnerships, the watershed partnerships that are all on the ground looking at what is happening. And I think that's really a positive thing to have people on the ground. And I think that is a challenge for Haleakala is to get people out of the office into the backcountry and be on the ground to witness what is happening. I think towards the end of my career, uh, some of the frustration was that there was not enough people on the ground. And I think that's really the thing that really needs to happen is that people really need to be able to figure out how to get in and document and then monitor and understand what is happening. Fortunately, there, there actually is a program at the park service that's um, an inventory and monitoring program. That began in 2012. And then every five years, they do plots. So they did again in 2016, 2017, and they got delayed to do the plots in 2022 because of the pandemic. But they're planning to get back in and, and do a lot of plots in 2023. So at least there is sort of a baseline, because in 2012, things were pretty 
pretty, uh, the resources were in good shape. And then by 2017, they started to have a lot of invasives and invasive feral animals. And um, the, the park really wasn't able to get a good handle on that. So I think 2023 is going to really open up people's eyes. Everybody has a stake in this manner, that we're all involved in this climate change. And it's not about your career. It's about the resources involved. Because I, I do think that Hawaii has a unique community. People are aware of how the environment is. And so I could only just hope to stay that we can do things. And, and I, I'm not sure how yet. I've only been retired three weeks, but how to continue to be involved in conservation. That was a conversation Savannah Herman-Pote speaking with Patty Welton, who just retired after 30 years of service as a botanist at Haleakala National Park. During her career, Welton spearheaded the restoration of the Koa Forest in the Kaupo Gap. To learn more about the endangered plants that Welton worked with, check out the links on our website later today. HPR is seeking candidates for a multimedia producer to oversee production of on-air promos, live music events, and other content for broadcast and digital platforms. If you have experience in audio recording and production, if you're well-versed in audio capture and storage systems, and have a love for public radio, we would love to hear from you. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkinen.com. sweet it is or isn't we're talking about honey wine honey mead or to be exact manoa honey mead its creator considers it a work of art yuki uzuhashi is an artist a sculptor who fell under the spell of honey and created a line of hawaii honey wine it's basically uh, diluted honey water and uh maybe the yeast yeah uh, you know just to start the fermentation so i've done you know a couple of uh batches when I, you know, just when I was just learning how to, you know, keep the bees like this long time ago. But um, it was maybe about five years ago that I became more serious about making better mead with the intention of maybe possibly to release or, you know, to sell, you know, commercial honey wine that we, mm-hmm. that we make here in Hawaii. So that's, that's where we started. We produce uh, all of our batches at our, you know, honey processing facility we have here in Waihewa. We have a warehouse of, you know, uh, honey production, but also we have a tiny, you know, retail store that we uh, display all those honeys and all the mead all together. We did offering the tour at this moment, but uh, you could sort of see, you know, how, how, how things are done here. Oh, oh, yeah, from beginning to the final product. And so where are you selling your product? Um, are they in stores? Uh, you know, I hear that you're exporting uh, somewhere on the mainland. We, sh- we ship to the mainland uh, individual customers, but mainly our, our market is here in Hawaii. You know, we distribute to, um, say, Whole Foods, both Honey and Mead, and Fuland, where has the R-Field Wine Company, that they carry our mead and honey. And also... You know, we do uh, souvenir, like gift size honey in ABC stores and also the bottle shops that carry, you know, craft beers and wines in town area and, you know, one in North Shore. 
Well, I'm intrigued because I, I know for the longest time we had that one Maui company doing pineapple wine. Uh, but this honey wine, so for folks who have never tasted it before, describe what they'd experience if they opened a bottle and, and, and drank a glass. Our mead is a little different than the traditional uh, mead. Traditional mead is tend to be a little sweeter and higher alcohol. And most likely people enjoy uh, room temperature. But ours is buckling style, which has nice, you know, good amount of bubbles and not too sweet. It's, I wouldn't say bone dry, but it's in on, on a drier side. And that we uh, co-ferment the honey together with uh, local fruits like lilikoi or pineapple or mangoes. So that not just the honey flavor, but you, you could taste the actual fruits uh, within those light bubbles. And so what would you pair it with? I would pair, um, you know, with light pupus or, you know, like cheese, crackers, and some type of meat that are, you know, very fruity that goes alone. So, you know, I wouldn't pair with that much of a heavy uh, dinners and stuff, but definitely enjoyable with lunch, brunch, or aperitif, and light food like cheese, or even maybe pasta is good, you know. You've created this value-added product, but what was it that got you interested in bees and honey? I was an art student, you know, learning in a sculpture department in Japan, but I was also seeking a theme of art that I could pursue for, for a longer period of time, not only just exhibition in, in, in a gallery or, you know, art shows that I could do longer involvement within that chase or finding of beauty in, in this world. And I came across the beekeeping that, you know, this type of action has been done, you know, for, for centuries from the Egyptian era. And the product itself that coming out from the activities is honey that never spoils for centuries, color of the gold, and, and it's delicious. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, you know, this, this whole, whole, whole package of action is, is just like art. So I just decided uh, to become a beekeeper to showcase this beauty from this nature uh, that was my first intention. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to express something that comes out from the beekeeping or honey production. But it turned out that it was like a, like a deep hole, a rabbit hole that <laughs> it took me down to real like commercial uh, beekeeping, you know, get into that industry. So I started in Japan, but uh, here I'm in Hawaii and still doing the same thing. That's how I see the beekeeping, that not just only um, uh, industry or the business, but also looking from the history of humans that encounter or found that bees and together that uh, they've sort of kept the relationship for, for centuries, you know, from Egyptian era, went to Europe and Europe to America and Hawaii. It's a little kind of romantic way to look at, you know, your, your industry, I guess. Well, we love going down rabbit holes. <laughs> and yeah. So, <laughs> right, you know, right. it's delightful because you never know what you're going to find. And it sounds like you found art in this business. True. Especially um, this meat production gave me a very different perspective than before. Because beekeeping, it's all about accepting the nature's gift that what the bees uh, produce and that's coming from the nature or environment that we keep the bees at say hawaii has certain flora that we can't change and we can't really control uh, bees to go which flowers or which you know um yeah flowers to go so it's all about accepting what they offer but also um this coming to meat production is more I could involve my, my, my um, art perspective or my concept can get into that production where, you know, you could sort of inject my art perspective or inspiration. So I, I feel like I stepped a little forward or a little stepped up towards my long journey of art expression, you know, through, through the beekeeping within this uh, meat production. What are the hours of your uh, facility there in Wahewa? So 
we're open from Tuesday to Saturday. And it's uh, open from 9 to 4 on, on the weekdays. Mm-hmm. And on, on Saturdays, uh, we're open from 10 to 3.30. One uh, note mm-hmm. to, to, you know, honeys and stuff is that, uh, you know, Hawaii has been, you know, some people like it or not, but it's, it's been a destination for honeymooners, you know, uh, and marketed, you know, in, in a certain way. But uh, actually, the, the the word honeymoon is coming from the month uh, that uh, newly, you know, marrying uh, newlyweds and brides that they drink the mead that bride's father brew, uh, you know, months before the, uh, what do you call the wedding day? They share that mead. And, you know, weeks after that, you know, the, the sweetest uh, weeks that they're drinking mead came from you know, became the word of uh, honey, uh, honeymoon. So, you know, month of honey or honey month. Well, and that, that became the word uh, honeymoon. And now there's uh, people travel, you know, uh, after the after the wedding. But that's, yeah, that's sort of said that, uh, you know, people enjoy the mead <clears throat> after the wedding. That's the, uh, the word honeymoon came from. I never heard that story. That's so interesting. Yeah. But yeah, that. but I can see how that would be a, a nice thing you know, when you try to sell your your uh, honeymead to the honeymooners from Japan. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right, it's, it's a perfect place to, to, you know, share that story. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing uh, that with us. And that was Yuki Uzuhashi, creator of Manoa Honeymead, a new product out on select store shelves. Look for links on our website later today. for the day. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa sits in for an Aloha Friday show. Call or talk back line to share your thoughts, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.